if you will, take out your Bible or your device or whatever means of God's Word that you have with you this morning. And if you don't have that, then look on with somebody that does, or you can follow along on the screen as uh, the majority of the scriptures that we're going to be sharing with you this morning, uh, you will find those on the screen. So this morning, I want you to turn to Psalm 73. We are in the midst of a summer, summer series uh, on the Psalms. We've done that for the last several, several years, and this year we actually um, ask you, the congregation, to submit to us what your favorite psalm is, and so we were taking all psalms outside of 23 and 1, because uh, we already have preached numerous sermons on those, not that we couldn't preach them again, but I thought it'd be a good time to, uh, to maybe go in a different direction uh, in the psalms. And so this morning we come to Psalm 73, which was uh, given to me by Doris as one of her three favorite psalms. So, um, Psalm 73. Actually, a psalm uh, that I have <clears throat> never preached on Sunday morning, but it is a psalm that I uh, did a four-week series on Wednesday night about eight years ago. And so, um, uh, take a little different direction this morning. Can't go into as much detail as I did eight years ago, uh, as I took four weeks to go through this particular chapter. Uh, but um, we'll hit the high points this morning, and I think these high points will serve us well um, as those who listen. Psalm 73, verse 1, reading out of the ESV translations. If you, translation, if you notice in your Bible, you may have above Psalm 73 uh, the phrase, book three. And so the Psalms are broken down into five books, and so we are reading out of book one, or chapter one of book three. Asaph writes these words, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, 
I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom, I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell you that I may tell of all your works. I've entitled this morning's sermon Fleshing Out Faith. Fleshing Out Faith. Psalm 73 begins the third book of the Psalter, as I said earlier. The collection of some of Israel's prized hymns, ballads, and congregational hymns. It reminds us of the importance of music both corporately and individually. It reminds us, more importantly, that the subject of our music should be the Lord. That's what I love about the Psalms, is that one inescapable truth of the Psalms that modern worshipers need to be reminded of because we live in the age where worship and a lot of worship music is all about us, that worship is all about God. It's all about God. Of the 150 Psalms, David is credited with 75 of them. So David writes right at 50% of the Psalms. Six other authors make up 27 Psalms. This guy Asaph that we meet this morning, Asaph is accredited with 12 of those 27. And then the remaining 48 authors of the Psalms have no accreditation. We, we're not sure who wrote them. The Psalms are not compiled in chronological order. They are compiled in an, in an instructive order, an order that is designed to teach us, listen, about the unpredictable path of life. Two people know about the unpredictable path of life. Two people are glad there's a songbook that teaches us how to navigate through life that is unpredictable. Psalm 73 opens book three. And it is, of the three books, it is the smallest. 
It only has 17 psalms in them. Like the third book of the Bible, Leviticus, which we're studying on Sunday morning, it focuses, book 3, and its 17 short songs focuses on the holiness of God. Psalm 73 opens the third book by teaching us how to apply holiness, the holiness of God, to the ugly aspects of life. Psalm 1, a psalm that I said we would not preach from, I will make reference to this morning. Psalm 1 opens with an invitation to consider the path of wisdom. It's a road sign that contrasts the two paths of life, right? The way of the wise and the way of the what? The wicked. A cursory reading of this chapter might lead one to think that those who chose the path uh, chose the path of the wise will experience utter prosperity. Look at Psalm 1, 1 through 3. I don't know where that came from on the screen. Oh, I know why. That's the message translation. Ignore it. That's the message on... I forgot to reset it to uh, ESV. Let's just read the message, and then I'll read the ESV. The message, which is a paraphrase, okay? It reads like this. How well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You don't slink along dead-end uh, dead road, and you don't go down to Smart Mouth College. Instead, you thrill to do God's Word. You chew on Scripture day and night. You're a, tree, you're a tree replanted in Eden, bearing fresh fruit every month, never dropping a leaf, always in blossom. Now, let me read you how the ESV writes that. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Listen, in all he does, he what? He prospers. Who doesn't like that passage? To interpret this passage as wisdom brings unfettered prosperity is to misinterpret that passage altogether. Remember the number one rule of interpreting Bible passages. You cannot interpret a Bible passage just in its immediate context. You must also interpret it in the context of the entire Bible. It is teaching us that living wisely is living better than wickedly. That's the point of Psalm 1, that to live wisely is better than to live wickedly. Psalm 73 reminds us that those who live wisely will face difficult questions. Did you get that? Those who live wisely will face difficult questions. So look at this statement that, that Mark's going to put up on the screen. This is key to understanding this morning. Wisdom is no sure prevention from trouble, 
but it is a cure for heartache. Wisdom is no sure prevention from trouble, but it is a cure for heartache. Wisdom enables us to live with poise amid our problems and predicaments. It it does not prevent them, but it enables us to live with poise amid those problems and predicaments. Anybody got any problems or predicaments this morning? Well, good, because this sermon is for for you. And if you don't think you got problems or predicaments, then you got a problem. That is, you don't think you got problems and predicaments. It's called blind, it's called a blind spot. It's called lack of honesty. It's called not being downwind of who you really are and what and what life really is. Psalm seventy three is written again by this guy named Asaph, and and we meet this guy Asaph. In 1 Chronicles chapter 23, verses 2 through 3. And in that, the, we, we meet, David is beginning to assign a group of people called the Levites. And the Levites are the group of people that are going to be uh, tasked with taking care of the temple. They're going to be tasked with the maintenance of the temple, with the, all the aspects of temple worship. And so David sets aside 38,000 Levites to take care of, of all the duties that um, are attached to the temple. And he singles out this group uh, in, uh, of 4,000. Okay? He, he basically breaks them into uh, four divisions. And in that fourth division, it, it has 4,000 Levites who were assigned the musical worship. Now think about that. 4,000 people assigned. I mean, the, the musical worship must have been awesome. I mean, what kind of choir and orchestra uh, uh, and praise team can you have when you got 4,000 people? Out of this division, a select company of 288 singers was singled out and divided into 24 courses. These were placed under different song leaders, and of these leaders, according to 1 Chronicles 16.5, Asa was the chief song leader in the temple. So the guy that's writing to us this morning holds the highest position in, out of this group of 4,000 who are responsible for leading worship. But here we have a, a man in such high leadership. I mean, think about how highly David thought of Asaph. If out of 4,000 people and out of 288 singers, Asaph was considered to be the chief amongst all of them. And yet Asaph writes this song that is so raw and real about his struggle. And, and, and when I read this, every time I read this psalm, here's what it reminds me of. It, it reminds me that no matter who you are, and no matter what position you may ascend to within, in, in Christianity 
or even in a church, or no matter how well you might be thought of spiritually, is that every Christian is required to flesh out their faith. To flesh out their faith. And, and you may say, what do you mean by flesh out their faith? And, and that is where faith moves out of the head and moves into reality. Where, where, you, where you move from just simply knowing facts and figures and verses about God till you really begin to know those verses in their reality. Uh, it, it begins to take on flesh. It's where, it, it's where uh, faith and reality come together. No one gets a pass. Great faith, the kind that we admire and inspire to have, requires deep waters of difficulty. And listen, this morning, even doubt. If you came into the sanctuary this morning and you've got some doubt in your mind about faith and about God and about the Bible, this is the place to be. This is not the place to stay away from. This is, listen, the sanctuary of God is where all doubters are welcome. You know why I like doubters? Because they're honest. They're honest. The very fact that we are people of faith comes with it that we will be people that will struggle with doubt. But praise God, He's, gave, he's given us a place where doubters can come. Where the invitation to doubters is, come, you're welcome. Are you glad that someone of Asaph's ilk struggles with doubt? I am. Anybody in here ever prayed the prayer that the man in the New Testament prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Listen, we're all prone to deception. Many have fallen into prayerlessness. Bibles lie untouched. Bank ledgers indicate no giving. And our overall disposition and dialogue indicate we no longer trust God. How can God's people find themselves in such a pitiful condition? It is because a misplaced perspective is our enemy's tool to keep us away from God. Do you know how many people aren't here this morning because of doubt? This psalm argues that if you cannot see good in your future, then the problem is not with God, but with your vision. This text raises the question of perspective. How do we view life when good things happen to bad people? Therefore, the text is tailored to teach us that the enigmas and inequalities of life will destroy your faith unless you regularly enjoy God's presence. Big words, right? The enigmas. You know what that is? The stuff that makes you scratch your head. The stuff that, the stuff that, that, that leaves you with no answers. 
the, the stuff that bears contradictions, the inequalities. The, you, you look around, and, and why do good things happen to bad people? And listen, if you stay away from the sanctuary of God, you will be destroyed. When I think about this verse, I, I have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of faces that, that go through my mind of people who are, find themselves in this situation this morning. Either their faith is being destroyed or their faith has already been destroyed. Why? Because they allowed the enigmas and the inequalities of life to overcome them. By how? How were they overcome? I have yet to meet a person who stayed in the sanctuary of God, who ever got overcome. But I know far too many people who are overcome, even right now, because they fail to go to the sanctuary of God. When the enigmas and the inequalities of real life and right theology trespass on the dominion of your theological comfort, don't look down... Don't look around, don't look within, but look up. When the harsh realities of life disrupt your neat theological categories, get to church. Many have asked the enigmatic questions of why does bad things happen to good people? However, in our text, Asaph turns that on its head and he asks the question, why does good things happen to bad people? So our text this morning begins like an episode of CSI. Any, any CSI fans this morning? Good show? All of them? How does CSI always start? At the end. And it works its way back. Here, Asaph starts at the end. He, he opens with the ending and works, and works his way backwards. He tells the truth and then shows us how to flesh that truth out in real life, Right? Asaph is going to show us that wisdom will not always keep us from trouble, but it is our cure for heartache that trouble causes. Look at verse 1. What's the truth there? I got three simple truths, or maybe four this morning. God is good. That's pretty easy. It's right there in the text. What does he say? He says, truly, God is good to Israel. Actually, if you read that in, if you were a Hebrew person, it would sound like this. Only God is good, always good. In other words, God is nothing but good to his covenant people. Asaph came to realize that despite the contradictions of life described in verses 3 through 14, God is good. Throughout history, God's people have declared what? God is good all the time. This is a statement of truth. But listen. But it's often doubted by God's people who proclaim that truth. Why? Because circumstances of life often cause us to doubt whether that statement, in fact, is true all the time. And why does our proclamation often fall short? Because of our perspective. Because of our perspective. What I love most about the Psalms, and this one in particular, is its honesty. Asaph is real, he's raw, but don't miss the good news of this chapter. Our God allows us to address 
him with our perceived contradictions. Scholars tell us that the, that the grammatical construction of the verse 2 intentionally disjoins the thought. There's a clean break. Asaph sets in contrast his own thoughts and experience against verse 1. Look at verse 2. What does he say? But as for me, is intended to suggest that his experience contradicts what, is he, what he says in verse 1. So listen, here's what he's doing. Asaph has gone through this whole event of life, and what he's doing, he's starting with, this is what I learned, and this is what I went through to learn what I learned in verse 1. How many of you, <laughs> life doesn't always line up with what the Bible says life should be? In these moments, we can inadvertently trade what we know for what we see. We can know the truth, but experience can cause us to doubt truth. This psalm reminds us that not all truth is visible in its final application. Some truth is like fruit. It is there and alive in seed form, but it's not yet expanded into its final size. Look at Asa's honesty in verses 2 through 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, the, the psalmist finds himself uh, experiencing two of my favorite Q words. Quandary, a delicate situation, and a quagmire. You know what a quagmire is? It's a bad situation. It's a bog. He wants us to feel his toil of reflection this morning. How can God be good when good things happen to bad people? Asaph is wading into universal waters. What he's doing is he's experiencing the fragility, the fragileness of his faith. I'm not going to go back and read verses uh, uh, 4 through 12, but when you read through those, he's talking about, my, my favorite line is, their life is so good that they die with fat, sleek bodies. Now, being fat, not thought of very highly in our culture, right? But in that day, a fat, sleek body was a sign of prosperity, was a sign of God's blessing. And so he's looking out. And he is seeing all of this prosperity. He, matter of fact, so if I was going to bring this in modern day vernacular, here's what I would say. Asaph has spent too much time on social media. He needs to deactivate all of his social media accounts. Why? Because what he's doing is, is, is Asaph is losing his perspective on life by looking at something that's real but not real. When's the last time somebody put their, like, who has ever taken a picture of their Sunday morning fight to get to church and put it on Facebook? Oh, y'all come on. Y'all out there looking like, we don't, it's so easy for us to get to church. We never have any problems. I don't think we've ever had a fight to get to church on Sunday morning. It's a lie. 
Yeah. Nobody puts that on Facebook. Nobody, nobody puts really the reality of their life. And, 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 if, and if you just look at social media and you look at everybody else's life, you know what you have to do? You kind of have to come to Asaph, Asaph's con- conclusion because you look at their life and you look at your life and, and you're like, how come I don't have that life? Why doesn't my life look like that? And Asaph's looking around and he's like, you know what? The wicked, those people that Psalm 1 talked about, they seem to be experiencing the promise of the wise. Why aren't they experiencing the promise of the wicked? You see, what he sees in the world is affecting what he knows about God. He knows that God is good, yet everything around him says that's not true. And this reality causes him to doubt. Look at verse 14, 13 and 14. I, just, I need to find some Christians who know, who know th- these two verses. Hmm? I'd like to hang out with you. This is, the, this, is, this is where I find myself a lot. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. How about that? You like that for honesty? Asaph falls prey to an age-old deception. Godly living equals the good life. That ain't in the Bible. Not the good life that we talk about. Not the good life where you go to the doctor and you never get diagnosed with cancer. Nobody ever gets Parkinson's. Nobody dies suddenly and tragically in a car wreck. Uh, The the kind where your marriage is perfect and there's never any disagreements, where all of your children grow up to be godly and awesome kids and they never do any wrong and you never have to discipline them and your bank account's always got money and you never get fired from your job and this never happens and that never happens. That's what we have equated the good life to be. Problem is, that's not in the Bible. Listen, listen, Asaph is not the only person struggling with this. Listen to what Job says. How how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgressions and my sins. Why would you hide your face and count me as your enemy? How about that for talking to God? Oh, he's not done. Job chapter 10, verse 2 and 3, he says, "I I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you have contended against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and favor the the designs of the wicked? How about one more? Just so you know, this is not the only cat that that feels this way. Listen to what God says to his people at the very end of the Old Testament. He says in Malachi 3, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say... How have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed? Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. 
You know what they're asking God? They want to know, why doesn't godly living equal the good life? And why do wicked people seem to prosper and get what the righteous deserve? You see, godly living does not equal quality of life externally, though it can. It equals quality of life internally and eternally. You see, the good, the good life is not the external factors in your life. The good life is the internal life that leads to an eternal life. You see, as long as you keep your look down here, you'll never have the good life. Why? Because you'll never have the in internal good life nor the eternal good life. We can't look down. We can't look in. We can't look around. We've got to look up. That's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that he could not find meaning under the sun. Life is vain. Why? Because life can only be found and understood and enjoyed in looking above the sun into the Son of God. Asa's problem was not people's prosperity, but it was his perspective. Asaph and many other great saints of God failed to understand the ways of an infinite God by looking around instead of looking up. As we have learned through our study of the Psalms, what we look at is powerful. It is transformative. Perspective determines perception, and perception creates reality. Let me say that to you one more time. Perspective determines perception where you're looking determines perception and perception what you're looking at creates reality as followers of christ we see through the eyes of understanding we must all start our understanding of god with the understanding that we will not understand his ways hey listen there's just there's god is a god that you can't fully understand Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 8. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Followers of Christ experience perplexity, and there is nothing sinful about being perplexed. This is a very godly emotion. Paul says that was his emotion. Perplexed, but not despair. However, despair is it's a sinful emotion. We are in God's hand, and yet when something unpleasant happens to us, we say what? I don't understand. That's, that's perplexity. There's, there's nothing wrong with saying to God, God, I don't understand why this is happening. It's normal. It's what finite minds say when they don't understand an infinite God. Why? Because these minds are weakened by sin. We, we can't fully comprehend what God does. We don't see clearly. We, listen, if you'll walk away with this one truth this morning, and that truth is this, I do not know what is best for my life. Hmm? You, you need to write that down, and that needs to be your mantra. Every day when you get up, I don't know what is best for my life? We cannot, 
you see, we, our view is so like this, so short-sighted, and God's is infinite. So it's very natural that we should be perplexed. Though it is not sinful to be perplexed, it does open a door for temptation. And, and this psalm shows us what happens when temptation is not dealt with quickly. It brings even the greatest, it brings low even the greatest saints. We see the strength of the temptation. Look at verse 21, 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Do you understand where he is? He is on the brink of abandoning his faith. I can tell you of, of two distinct times in my life where I contemplated, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm walking away. I've had enough. I don't believe this anymore. This does not make sense. What I have been taught and what I have experienced does not make sense. Tote the casket of an eight-week-year-old baby to the grave and, ask your, and, and see if you don't find some doubt in that moment. He has finished with his faith and he's finished with the God of his faith. And then verse 15 shows us something vital to who Asaph is, but most of all to who God is. Look at verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Notice that critical word, if. If I had said. Why didn't he say it? You know, I asked myself this question, even this week, in, in reading this again, I asked myself this question, why in the world am I still even a Christian? Why haven't I walked away? Why haven't I abandoned the faith? Why am I still here? Thirty years ago this week, thirty years ago this week, I started preaching. And I asked myself this morning when I got up, thirty years later, not why do you go preach, but why do you even go to that place? How many of you have had plenty of opportunities to kiss the faith goodbye, to walk away, to abandon it? How many of you have had good reasons to do that? How many, how many of you have had experience in your life that dictate what your faith tells you? Hmm? Well, let me ask you a question. What are you still doing here? Hmm? Why do you keep picking up the Bible and reading it? Why do you keep praying? Why do, why do you keep walking with the Lord? Why does Asaph say, if I had said? I'm 
I'm going to tell you why. Asaph may have been finished with God and with his faith, but the God of that faith was not finished with him. Hey, did you get that? He might have been finished, but God wasn't finished. God says to, listen, listen, just come close for a minute. Philippians 1.6 says, He that began a good work in us will see it through to the, to the day of completion. You see, here's what God says to you and to me. He says, look, when I bring you into the family, you might have quit in you, but I don't got any quit in me. And if it, if, if it was left up to you, you would have quit. But the good thing about it is you didn't get started, so you don't get to you don't get to choose when to quit. The only reason why this man doesn't do what somebody who was not genuinely a Christian would do is because the faith that he was ready to quit on and the God of that faith was not ready to quit on him. And you know how I know that? Look at verse 23 and 24 real quick. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Now, that's, now, now he's talking about it. He's saying about himself, Lord, I am continually with you. But do you know why he's saying I am continually with you? Because <laughs> of the next part. You got me by the hand. So, <laughs> listen, if God's got you by the hand, you can't be anything but continually with him. Why? Because God's not like some kind of terrible parent who just lets you go when they get tired of you, God is the parent that grabs hold of your right hand and he keeps holding on no matter whether you're holding on or not. And that's why he says, I am continually with you because you got me. And I am still here. Why? Because you got me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Listen, if his grace doesn't keep you from falling down, it will keep you from staying down. Our Heavenly Father gives us a grace to flesh out our faith that will not fail because He holds and guides us all the way to glory. I love this. I, I put, uh, I think it's the next slide. Maybe I didn't put it in here. But let, let me give it to you anyway. I didn't. I'm sorry. You need to write this down. You are not saved by your amazingly strong faith. You're not saved by your amazingly strong faith. You're saved by His amazingly strong faithfulness. You're not saved by your amazingly strong faith. You're saved because of His amazingly strong faithfulness. Asaph was worn out because he was trying to understand life through a secular and not a sanctuary perspective. I'll hurry up and finish up here in the next couple of minutes, I promise. Look what he says in verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. God will bring you to the end of yourself so that he can bring you to himself. Some of y'all are weary this morning. And that's the grace of God. He's bringing you to the end of yourself so He can bring you to Himself. And look where the Lord brings Him. To church. 
Where, what happens at church? It's the place of equilibria, the place of understanding, the place where the topsy-turvy nature of your life sets itself on a solid rock. In the sanctuary, you find perspective. And in 18, 19, and 20, he finds perspective. Back up in verse 2, he says, I was slipping and I was about to slide and fall. But, but look what he says in 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. You see, what happens is, is that he's got perspective now. He, he's no longer looking around. He's no longer looking down or within. He's looking up. And, and when he looks up, he sees the end of the wicked. They may be standing now, but they will slip and fall in the end. They will utterly be slept away. When Asaph went into the house of God, when he went into the sanctuary, the choir was singing, How Great Is Our God. And when he heard that, his vision started evening up. His fuzzy picture became clear. It's what it, ta- it's what, it takes what we see and hear in the sanctuary to help us straighten out the life. We all need that till moment, till we go into the sanctuary. Often when I have to drive over to Birmingham, I will flip over on the local news to, uh, on the radio because I, I need to hear a traffic report, right? Because Lord knows you don't want to get stuck in traffic in Birmingham. And there are some places that are constantly known for having issues. And, and I go through those places sometimes, so I don't want to get stuck. So I flip on the radio, and, and, and the radio will have a reporter that will come on. And that reporter is relaying information that, that is being reported. And a lot of times they get their information from a helicopter pilot that's flying over the top. He's got a different perspective. He's, he's got a different vantage point. Uh, of what's going on down below. And what he does is that he radios back down uh, to the radio station and to the traffic reporters. Hey, this is what's going on. Th- this is the, uh, the, the, the reality of the traffic in Birmingham. And listen, listen to the traffic reports. You don't do that for pleasure. You do that so that you can get relief from pain. <laughs> they could tell you how to avoid the pain And they can also tell you, if you get caught in that, how to get out of it. When when is relief coming? How much further before I get out of this situation? The traffic reporter doesn't eliminate the problem. They just tell you how to navigate the problem. Preachers are like traffic reporters. They help us to go up and worship and see things as they really are. That's what the sanctuary does. It helps you to see things for what it really is. Listen, you may think that the wicked are getting away with their wickedness. And you may think this morning that living a godly life is not worth it. Because it seems to bring no external benefit to your life. But Asaph would tell us this morning is that there's something far more beneficial than the external enjoyments of this life, and that is the internal enjoyments of walking wisely with the Lord, of living for Him, of walking with Him, in spite of what you might have to endure externally in this life. And he simply concludes 
this fleshing out of his faith in verses 25 and 26. He says, whom, I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Fleshing out our faith further strengthens our relationship with God. That's what he's saying. Our Father uses our doubting to deepen our faith, not destroy it. Asaph's doubt led him to a deeper relationship. Look at the last verse. He said, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your good works. You know what he's saying? He's saying, here's what I've learned. It's good for me to be near God because God is good. It's good for me to be near God because God is good. No matter what my circumstances may say, no matter what may be happening to the wicked, here's what I know. Here's where I stand this morning. Here's my solid rock. And that is, unless the wicked repent, they will slip and they will fall into God's judgment. God will not let, God will not let the wicked go unpunished. God will punish the wicked. But listen, I'm going to tell you what God desires for the wicked. That they should repent. That they should turn to Christ and let the judgment for their sin fall on Christ at the cross. So that they will not be judged in eternal damnation. But don't miss this, Christian. They will be judged if they will not repent. The Bible tells us and gives us affirmation this morning of how we know, I'll give you one last thing, how you know that God is good. The book of Acts is a sermon right after uh, the Holy Spirit comes. And the Bible says that wicked men crucified Christ according to the predetermined plan of God. And then God raised him up from the dead. You know, it was really hard on Friday for those small, that small group of followers of Christ to realize that the most wicked day in human history could bring about the greatest good in human history. They looked around and they thought, you know what? Wickedness has won. Evil has triumphed. Good has died. But here's what they could not see, and that is God sees the long plan. God predestined His Son to be killed. Not only did he predestine his death, but he predestined his resurrection. And just as Joseph looked at his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, and he says, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Christians, we've got something in our lives that can keep us standing on solid ground. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. That's none of us. 
Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. That's still not any of us. But God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know how you know God is good? Because while you were bad, He was being good. <laughs> so when Asa starts off and he says, Truly I know that God is good. All the time and all the time, God is good. He is saying to us, Hey, you New Testament believers, you begin to doubt that, all you need to do is take a look in the rearview mirror and see the cross that stands in your past, and it is saying, in your, if I can take care of your past, your future is easy. If I got your past, I got your present, and if I got your present, I got your future. And if I did all of that while you were at your worst, now that I've made you mine, how can I not be even better to you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good, irregardless of what circumstances say to us. And Father, maybe there's some that have joined us in person or, or online that have come into this service with their own doubts. Maybe, maybe somebody's just walked in this morning and said, you know what, I'm just done. God, I'm done. I, I'm, I'm tired of living, trying to live for you, and, and yet I see so many people who just don't even believe you exist or rail against you or curse you or totally uh, 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 just... stick their tongue out at you, how they prosper, and it seems like there's no retribution, there's, there, there, there's, no, uh, there, uh, there's no punishment for their crime. And you're just on the verge of just saying, you know what, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go on over there. I'm going to be on that team. I'm going to follow that way of living. The Bible says it's wicked and it's not the right way but it, and, and, and it's not prosperous, but it sure does seem to be the right way and it sure does seem to be prosperous. If that's you this morning, can I just simply say this to you? God brought you to the sanctuary either through video or, or in person for one reason, to tell you something. Quit looking around and begin to look up. Don't base your belief on what you see with your eye. Look at life through the eyes of faith. If the wicked don't repent, they will have their day, just as the wise will one day have their day. If that's you this morning, listen. The Father is saying to you, you know what? I love you. And I'm not going to let you go. And I brought you here because I want you to hear this message from me. I want you to look up. And I want you to see me. And how can you not believe I don't have your best at heart when I gave my best for you when you were at your worst?
Father, this morning I pray that you would encourage the doubter, that you would strengthen the doubter, that the very thing that feels like it's about to destroy faith would be used by you and turned on its head to deepen faith and to, and to put a ballast in the heart of that person that they've never had before. Father, there's, there's, much, there's much that needs to be done in our hearts and lives. And you know what we need individually. Apply this message as each person needs it in these moments ahead. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and just sing one more song with us this morning?